Hello and welcome back to the Come Follow Me Bible Challenge. My name is Jeremy Howard and I am the pastor on staff here at Orchard Hills Bible Church in Payson, Utah. Thank you for joining me today as we look at another passage of the New Testament following along with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints curriculum schedule. Today, for the week of January 23rd to the 29th, we're looking at Matthew 3, the baptism of Jesus. What an amazing passage. Well, again, we have uh, some pretty major disagreements uh, that we'll need to consider and just uh, look to see what the text says and see what God has for us in this. So let us start by reading Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. It says, Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John, to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus, answering, said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting upon him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Obviously, this is an amazing passage that uh, many of us know. Jesus was baptized, and it was an utterly unique baptism for a few different reasons. Baptism is a religious practice that is found in multiple religions, and it's always very important. Whenever a baptism takes place, it's very significant for the one being baptized and for that religion's community. Lots of religions and denominations out there will keep track of baptisms with counting stats because baptism is considered to be that important. So no disagreement there. We all think baptism is important, but we do have different reasons. We do have some different reasons. And I think, I, I was going back and forth in my head about how I wanted to attack all the different things that I have in my head here for this episode. But I think I want to start with just looking at the LDS website, how they give a little overview of this passage, I guess, as a like a setup or a, a help to teachers, those in their organization who are teaching through this Come Follow Me curriculum. And so um, the heading here says, Jesus Christ was baptized to fulfill all righteousness. And it says, when you were baptized, you followed the example of the Savior. Compare what you learn from the accounts of the Savior's baptism with what happened during your baptism. So maybe this is more for the student than it is for the teacher. I guess that would make more sense. And here we have a little table, the Savior's baptism compared and contrasted with, quote-unquote, my baptism. And these first three questions on each side of the column, or in, in each of the columns of this table, kind of interesting. Even just the first one kind of reveals our differences here. For the Savior's baptism, it says, Who baptized Jesus, and what authority did he hold? So right there, we kind of need to pause. Because we don't see in this account of Jesus' baptism, and we don't see uh, in 
the baptism accounts that follow a direct tie to the importance of a special authority upon the one doing the baptism. I think the closest you'll get is at the end of Matthew's gospel, which we'll get to, I guess, at the end of this year, right? Where Jesus says to his disciples after the resurrection, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And he commissions his disciples to go, therefore, and teach all that he had commanded them and to baptize. So they were to make disciples through teaching and baptism. And um, I think what happens, maybe because of that passage, maybe not because of that passage in particular, is we have in the LDS mind this idea that when it comes to getting baptized, it's really important that you check and make sure that the one performing the baptism has a proper authoritative status in, in the religion. And again, you don't get this in the New Testament. You don't get it in this passage. What, what authority did John the Baptist have over Jesus? I mean, John the Baptist was basically telling Jesus, no, I shouldn't be baptizing you. And Jesus said, shut up, you're going to baptize me, right? That is a major uh, paraphrase. <laughs> but that's what happened. I mean, Jesus said, no, you, you, will be bapt- you will be baptizing me today, and uh, we're going to fulfill all righteousness here through this process. So uh, John the Baptist had no authority over Jesus. You don't have at this point the church. Now, Jesus says later on in the Gospel of Matthew that he will be building his church, so this is before that. And uh, you have John the Baptist baptizing people who are repenting of their sins. His baptism was one of repentance. That comes out through the uh, New Testament scriptures. In the Old Testament, you don't have in the law this command to be baptized. You don't have this idea of certain authorities offering baptism based on their authority, baptisms of repentance or otherwise. Um, You have ceremonial washings that take place, but it's not like what John the Baptist is doing here. So you don't have this idea of a God-ordained system of authority that John the Baptist is drawing upon to set up baptisms there in the river, and when people come down, they're coming to this God-ordained authority for this specific act. You don't have that presented in the Old Testament scriptures, and you don't have the New Testament scriptures picking up on that as far as this is how it's supposed to happen. Certain authorities get permission to baptize, and uh, you need to make sure that the proper authority baptizes you. You you don't really have that. So, um, again, going back to this table on the LDS website, who baptized Jesus and what authority did he hold? You get over to the other side of the dividing line there for my baptism, who baptized you and what authority did he hold? So if I were to answer that question, I would say, well, my pastor in Missouri baptized me when I was 18 years old. I became a Christian at 16. It was in Lake Palm de Terre in Missouri. That's where I was baptized. And uh, he was an elder in the church. He held the office of overseer, elder, pastor uh, that we read about in the New Testament in a variety of places. And uh, he, he's the one who baptized me, but his authority, as far as holding that office in the church, did not give him then 
the special ability to be able to baptize people. The, the New Testament doesn't make that connection. The Bible doesn't make that connection for us that only certain authorized individuals are able to baptize. So, for instance, in our church, there are times, we actually had two of these occasions last year, there are times when a husband and wife couple will be getting baptized at the same time. They had never partaken in Christian baptism before, and so this is their opportunity. What we will do is um, someone, in, usually in church leadership, but not always, will baptize the husband, and then we'll get out of the way, and the husband will then baptize his wife. What authority does the husband have to be baptizing his wife? Well, what authority does the New Testament say you have to have to baptize your wife? That's an important question. And when you start doing that study, you'll see that there's just nothing there, um, that that's just not a thing for the apostles in the New Testament. Uh, in fact, if if there was this idea that you had to have a certain priesthood status or something like that, uh, you would see that talked about in Paul's letters to the churches where he instructed them on a variety of things. Uh, but he, you, instead, you find him writing to the Corinthians, I thank God that I baptized none of you except for Crispus and, and Gaius, two guys he baptized, and he said, I'm thankful I didn't baptize more of you. So apparently they were baptizing themselves there in the church when someone would come to faith because people were getting baptized in, in Corinth. So uh, again, you, you just it's a real stretch to try to find that there's a certain authority tied to uh, bap- being able to baptize other people. All right, uh, let, let's look at some other questions in this table. Where was Jesus baptized? Where were you baptized? How was Jesus baptized? How were you baptized? Now, these are just probably interesting conversation starter type questions um, that we would kick around in our church too. Um, but these last two questions on each side are really important and I think uh, play a pretty big role in, uh, in this whole conversation. So the first question is, why was Jesus baptized? And the second question is, why were you baptized? Uh, and then the last question in each of the columns, how did Heavenly Father show that he was pleased with Jesus? And on the other side, how did Heavenly Father show that he was pleased with you when you were baptized? How has he shown his approval since then? Those are really important questions. So let's, uh, let's look at answering those. Why was Jesus baptized? Well, the good news is that we're not left grasping at straws and just fumbling our way through this and, and trying to uh, make sense of this. We actually have an answer that Jesus himself provides in the text, right? Uh, John asks him, like, why are you coming to me to be baptized? And remember Jesus' answer? To fulfill all righteousness. So if someone were to ask, like is proposed here in the manual, why was Jesus baptized? The answer is, he was baptized to fulfill all righteousness. Now, if someone says, what does that mean? Now we have a little bit more difficulty, don't we? Because Jesus doesn't give us the detail on what he meant by that in that moment. But we can tie some things together. We can start looking at the Bible as a whole and think, okay, well, what does this mean? Uh, Let's look at the passage again. It's in verse 15. Jesus answered and said to him, said to John the Baptist, permit it at this time. So that's like Jesus telling John, this is what you're going to do. For in this way, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. 
And when he says us there, we know that John had to be involved. Uh, baptism, by definition, is something that involves two people. You can't baptize yourself legitimately. You can baptize yourself, but that's an illegitimate baptism. There's another person who baptizes you. Um, again, not someone with a special authority, but someone who serves as a representative uh, in some sense for uh, for God. Okay, someone who is who's there serving for God. So um, just like you can't fellowship with yourself, uh, the, it requires two people. Same with baptism. Okay, just like you can't uh, love one another by yourself. Same with baptism. So there's an us aspect to it. Baptism, by definition, is a at least two-person event. And so Jesus says, us, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Well, as we begin to answer what fulfill all righteousness means, that word fulfill, I think, is quite important to dwell on, just the word fulfill. In Matthew's gospel, he's, he's writing to uh, Jews, and he's seeking to convince them that Jesus is their Messiah. And so quite often, Matthew will be referencing the Old Testament. There are a bunch of Old Testament references in the gospel of Matthew in particular. And he uses the word fulfill quite a bit in his gospel when he's speaking of the way that Jesus came along and fulfilled, <laughs> completed, rounded out, uh, satisfied what was set forth in the Old Testament that led to his coming. So this this fulfillment language is important. Jesus said that he's fulfilling something by this baptism, and it's all righteousness that he's fulfilling. But as I mentioned earlier, there was nothing in the law that said you needed to be baptized. Okay, so this this can't be talking about that. Jesus isn't saying, I'm fulfilling the righteousness that's set forth in the law that was given through Moses. That just can't be it because it wasn't a thing. So what then could it be? Well, I think if we take a trip to Isaiah 53, that will help us start to wrap our minds around what's going on here, particularly verses 10 through 12. Isaiah 53, 10 through 12. Speaking of the Messiah who was to come, God, through the prophet Isaiah, said, The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Now, we'll stop right there. I believe that this is speaking of the death of Christ, of course, but also his resurrection. It pleased the Lord to crush him. When the Lord crushes, he doesn't leave a bruise. When the Lord crushes, someone dies. There's a death. Okay, He was put to grief and he was rendered as an offering. So this is very clearly speaking of a sacrificial death. The Lord was pleased to do this to the Messiah. And of course, that is what happened to Jesus. He was a guilt offering. He died on the cross in our place for our sins. So this is speaking of death. Yet in the same verse, the very next line, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Now, what could this mean? If we're saying in the first half of the verse, it's speaking of the death, what's this whole prolonging of days thing? There, that would be an end of days if he was dead. Well, I think this actually is pointing to the resurrection. He will be resurrected. 
he will still live. Yet he's crushed, yet he's made a guilt offering. He will still live. His days will be prolonged. And from that point forth, the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. So I think that's important to point out. But let's keep reading. Verse 11, As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. So how do we get to Jesus' baptism from here? (laughs) Well, um, you have this purpose statement here in verse 11. The Messiah's mission will be to bear the iniquities of the many. The righteous one is going to come, and he is going to be a guilt offering for the many, bearing the iniquities of the many. And, in conjunction with that, verse 12 says, He is to be numbered with the transgressors. Numbered with the transgressors. Identified with sinners is another way to say that. Jesus is going to be identified with the sinful people. And he's going to intercede for them. He's going to be identified with them, and he's going to intercede for them. So as we come up here and consider the baptism of Jesus in Matthew 3... What Again, what was John's baptism about? Well, his baptism was one of repentance. And this is why John tried to prevent him, it says in verse 14. He says explicitly, I have need to be baptized by you, and you come to me? Why is John saying that? Well, we don't know if he fully understood he was speaking to the Messiah at this point, but he did know that in some sense, at least, Jesus is morally superior to him, that Jesus is clean already, that he's recognizing, in some sense, the perfections of this man, Jesus Christ. And so he's saying, um, I should be getting baptized by you, not the other way around. And so he's trying to stop it from happening. But Jesus says that this is necessary for fulfillment. This needs to happen for fulfillment. And I think a major aspect of this is that he's fulfilling the identification with sinners. Think of, think of this, uh, this scene. Perhaps there were other people getting baptized by John that day. I think that's quite realistic. Maybe there's like a line going into the water, and you've got sinner after sinner after sinner after sinner being baptized for repentance. And John is probably communicating that as he's baptizing them. This, is, this person is seeking to turn from his sins to bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And so it makes sense. Man after man, woman after woman, all these people coming to John. And then here's Jesus. And then John says, well, I can't you know, say that he was saying that each time someone was getting baptized. I can't baptize Jesus and say, this man is repenting of his sins. I, he couldn't say, I, I am baptizing you because you are turning from your wicked ways and your transgressions. Impossible to say that of Jesus. And John recognizes this. I have need to be baptized of you. You are morally superior. But Jesus, whose role, according to Isaiah 53, right down here, whose role was to be numbered with the transgressors, he comes to John with, I think this being a major purpose, 
that he is going to identify with the sinners of his day. It's an aspect of his intercession for the transgressors, that he is coming and identifying as a creature because he is wearing creaturely flesh. He's identifying as a sinner, though he himself is not a sinner. He's identifying as a human, though he himself uh, is 100% God in addition to his true humanity. So it's an interesting thing that's going on. Now, we still have to obviously deal with the all-righteousness aspect because Jesus here doesn't say explicitly, I'm fulfilling my identification with the sinners. But he says he's fulfilling all righteousness. What's that about? Well, I think that because this wasn't a command of the law, we don't see this in the law of Moses. We see 613 laws in the law of Moses, and this wasn't one of them. When Jesus says all righteousness here, I think he's basically stating, in addition to his identification with the people, that this is God's will for the people. Before Jesus accomplished his work, and all men everywhere were called to repent and place their faith in him, you have this moment in history where God has raised up John the Baptist, calling people to repent. And it was God's will that they would be baptized by John, that there would be this baptism of repentance. That was God's will. And so Jesus here is demonstrating as he's identifying with the transgressors, he's demonstrating what the heart attitude should be, what the righteous heart would be doing, which is going to John, being baptized by him as an act, a symbol, a a picture of turning Godward, turning from sin and turning to God. This was God's will for the transgressors at this time. And here Jesus is identifying with them and saying this is what God would have us to do. So uh, I I think that's what's going on with uh, why Jesus was baptized. So again, we're going back to this table here. Why was Jesus baptized? That's my answer, okay? Now here's an an important question next to it. Why were you baptized? And that's a great question. If you've been baptized, I think you need to answer that for yourself. Why were you baptized? I know a lot of people in the LDS religion, get baptized at eight years old, if, if they're raised in the faith anyway, and uh, they're told that's what you do. It's prescribed that at eight years old, that's what you do. Well, if you think back and consider when you got baptized, if you got baptized at that age, why it is that you got baptized, what would your honest answer be? I'll let you just marinate on that for a moment. Was it because you had a sincere understanding of the good news of Jesus Christ and a genuine faith in the gospel, an authentic repentance? Or was it because there was an expectation for you to be baptized and there was going to be a little bit of a party afterwards with your favorite ice cream? Now, I'm not here saying it was definitely one or the other, only you know, but I do think that's a really important question for you to ask yourself. Because baptism when it is prescribed and required, even, I guess, especially when it's prescribed and required at a specific age, it loses its heart, doesn't it? It becomes something that is done because you're told so, instead of something that you're doing from a place of authentic, genuine faith in the gospel. So I think that's really important to consider, but let's... uh 
Let's also, well, we need to dwell on one more thing, I guess, before we go to the last question of this little table. Um, some people will say, I was baptized because I was making a covenant commitment to God, and that even if I didn't understand everything that was going on, I was entering into a covenant. Well, this is another place where the LDS teaching differs from what we have presented in the New Testament. So similar to the whole authority issue with the authority of the baptizer, we also have this covenant issue where a lot of times people will say, I was baptized as an act of entering into a covenant or, or keeping a covenant ordinance with God. The New Testament doesn't give us this idea of being baptized to enter into a personal covenant with God that is maintained through certain ordinances. Now, is there a connection between water, sprinkling, even baptism, and covenant? Are these themes connected anywhere in Scripture? Yes, but not in the same sense as what the LDS organization teaches to my understanding. Now, so I'm open to someone clarifying that for me. Uh, by the way, that word baptism, it means to be immersed or dipped. It, it never means to be sprinkled uh, or to ha- like have rain fall on you, that kind of idea. And so like in Ezekiel, where you get in Ezekiel uh, 36 and 37, this promise of a new covenant that God is, is doing, and he talks about sprinkling with clean water. He's not talking about Christian baptism, because Christian baptism is by definition, because of the word baptizo in the Greek, it's an immersion. It's not a sprinkle. So that's just something to consider through all of this. Um, so you get this idea in a few places in Scripture with the sprinkling of clean water and entering into a covenant with God through faith. Uh, but that sprinkling with water isn't baptism because baptism means going into the water and being immersed. So that's another thing. If you were baptized because you were told to keep a covenant ordinance with God, as like a way of maintaining your individual salvation or advancing your individual relationship with God, uh, you may have a wrong idea of what God expects of you and what baptism is. And you may actually have a false hope of your good standing with God. And I think the last question on the table bears that out. When uh, it asks here, how did Heavenly Father show that he was pleased with Jesus? We have the answer in our text, don't we? You have in verse 16, after being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were open, and you have first the Spirit of God descending as a dove. This is a simile, so Matthew's not saying that the Holy Spirit turned into a bird for a minute, I don't think, but that he his descent was as a dove would descend, and landed, rested upon Jesus. That's what the Holy Spirit does. So there's point number one. And point number two is a voice out of the heavens said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So how does God show his, what was the word? Was it approval? How did he show that he was pleased with Jesus? Well, first you have the Holy Spirit coming and serving as a a visual symbol. There's there's something visual going on. Again, I don't think he turned into a bird, but there's something visual going on. You've got this visual uh, deity 
resting as like a seal of approval upon Jesus. And then you have an audible voice from heaven. So they're not seeing anything here, but they're actually hearing a voice out of the heavens. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So how did Heavenly Father show that he was pleased with Jesus? Well, those are two main ways, right? And it was extremely unique. As I said at the beginning, Jesus' baptism was very unique. And then it asks, how did Heavenly Father show that he was pleased with you when you were baptized? Well, I assume you're not going to say, the Holy Spirit descended on me as a dove and rested upon me, and a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son or daughter in whom I am well pleased. That, that's not going to be your answer, right? Um, and then the second question that's tied to it here is, how has he shown his approval since then? Well, this is a little interesting. Um, I, won- I wonder what the heart of the question is here. I think, again, it's coming from that perspective of this is a mandated covenant ordinance that you are expected to uphold on your side in order to keep God happy with you to stay in his good graces. The New Testament, again, just does not present baptism this way. Perhaps if you are a Latter-day Saint, you're tempted to say, well, he showed that he was pleased with me because X, Y, Z happened in my life, and uh, I know that's because I kept my end of the deal in our covenant, and he's showing his approval over my life, that he's pleased with me because I'm obeying, and and that's how he showed his his favor because of what I did for him, because I made my commitment to him. And I would encourage you uh, not to think that way, because you will always have reasons, both good and bad, that you can identify in your life that you could twist to say, well, this is God showing he's happy with me, or this is God showing he's mad at me. As though God were like a cosmic version of our human fathers. Our human fathers, they've, they can be pretty fickle, right? And I say this, as a human father, I, uh, I can ha- be in a good mood, and then I can be sinfully grumpy with my children because of something that they do that just ticks me off. Well, God's not like that. God doesn't sit back as sinful human fathers do and say, hey, if you jump through these hoops, I'm going to make your life better. But if you, you know what, if you cross me, I am just going to, uh, I'm going to put some pebbles in your shoes that you're just going to be so bugged by, and that's how your life's going to go. Um, now, to a degree, do we sow what we reap? Yep. No, that's not karma. That's God's sovereignty. Does God discipline his children? Yes, he does. Christians, those who have become children of God through faith in Jesus, he's involved in their lives and he does respond to what they do. But he does so in perfect righteousness. It's never fickle. It's always in just this amazing, sovereign, gracious, loving way that God does these things. It's never in the same sense as sinful creatures do. So that's the the distinction I'm trying to highlight here. And I'm bringing that up because I think maybe there are some people out there who have in their minds that God is just wanting them to go through a mindless, cold ritual so that they'll be on God's good side. And that's not what baptism is. That That's never what baptism was intended to be. In fact, you have a new baptism that comes after the baptism of John. 
So this baptism that Jesus undergoes, this this isn't the same baptism as the baptism now that we have in the Christian church. This was a baptism of repentance, the baptism of John. Whereas later we have baptism presented in the New Testament as an identification with Christ who has completed our salvation, who has earned for us the forgiveness of his sins, who has died, he shed his own blood, that we might be justified. And for those who have faith in him, they're identified with Jesus in baptism. Metaphorically, in the New Testament, you have this word baptism being used to speak of identification. Jesus asks his disciples, uh, are you able to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Because they were asking, I think it was James and John, right? The sons of thunder. They were asking, can we be on your right hand uh, when you're in your glory? Well, Jesus is talking about he's going to suffer many things on his way to glory, and he's going to suffer that he may be lifted up and glorified. And these two disciples are saying, yeah, yeah, we want that too. And he says, are you able to drink this cup? Are you able to be baptized the way I'm baptized? Well, there's not an actual cup that's being drunk. There's not an actual baptism that's taking place that Jesus is talking about at this point. He's using it metaphorically, identifying with him in his suffering, his terrible, terrible suffering um, that was beyond human expression. And so baptism actually carries with it more than just ritual. It carries with it this idea of identification. And we see this in Colossians 2, when Paul is writing to the church at Colossae. In Colossians 2, starting in verse 9, it says, For in him, Jesus Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority. And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Wow, that's an amazing passage, isn't it? But notice it says in verse 11, believers in Jesus, they are in Christ, they were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. So we have here this idea of circumcision being used metaphorically, talking about the spiritual circumcision that took place upon their faith in Christ, their initial faith in the biblical gospel. And then you have baptism used the same way in the next verse. These Christians were buried with Jesus in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So baptism is not only the physical act, circumcision is not only the physical act, but these physical acts are actually representative of an inward, immaterial identification with Jesus. That believers in Christ are identified with him with a circumcision made without hands. 
and a baptism performed without hands. From the moment of belief, you could say that a believer in the gospel, whether he's four years old or 84 years old or 104 years old, upon the moment of initial genuine belief in the gospel, that person is circumcised, baptized, totally identified with Jesus Christ. So that's pretty amazing. So when you get to the physical baptism that takes place in the church, by the way, circumcision here is is used as an example, but it's not commanded in the New Testament. Baptism here is used as an example, and it is commanded in the New Testament. Disciples of Jesus are to be baptized. So when you get to baptism in the New Testament, it's an identification with Christ that has already happened in the heart, but is now happening outwardly and physically to express to all of those present, to witness to them, that you are now identified with Jesus. That's what Christian baptism is. It's not an ordinance performed to maintain a covenant. It is not something that you do through the exact right channels, finding out if someone has the proper authority based on church organization structure or something like that. It is something you do in Christian community, all right? You don't, again, you don't do this on your own. You do it in Christian community, and you do it to show people on the outside what has already happened to you on the inside, which is you have been identified with Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection because of what he has done in dying in your place for your sins, rising for your justification, that you may be made right with God once for all by faith alone. That's what baptism is. It doesn't earn you anything with God. It expresses to others what's already taken place in your heart. Well, let me point out one more thing, all right? I would love to end there, but there's just one more thing I want to point out. Back to the LDS religion website. When you scroll down, one more thing it mentions about this scenario in Matthew 3. You see the heading here. The members of the Godhead are three separate beings. That's something it wants us to know. And the little paragraph that follows says, The Bible contains numerous evidences that the members of the Godhead are three separate beings. The account of the Savior's baptism, or the accounts, rather, of the Savior's baptism are one example. As you read these accounts, ponder what you learn about the Godhead. Why are these doc- doctrines important to you? So let's go back real quick. It's really just speaking of verses 16 and 17. The Spirit of God descends upon Jesus. And the voice out of the heavens, this is the Father's voice, saying, this is my beloved Son. So, let's ponder. I'll make this real simple and short. What do we have? We have three distinct persons. We'll put them in this order. You have a voice out of the heavens, identified as the Father, because he says, this is my Son. You have the Son being baptized. There he is in the flesh, the fullness of deity dwelling in him. Then you have the Spirit who descended upon him. No doubt about it, three separate persons. They're simultaneously showing up. We don't have one God as one person taking turns being Father, Son, and Spirit. Nope, here they are, all three are together at the same time. Does this mean that there are three separate beings that make up the Godhead. No, it does not. No, it doesn't. How can that be? Well, the New Testament tells us, James 2.19, James 2 is a popular passage among many Latter-day Saints. You believe that God is one, James says. 
You do well. Even the demons believe that. So how many gods are there? Well, there's one God. God is one. There is one God, 1 Timothy 2.5 says. One God. And then you've got another passage I want to point out, John 10, 30 and 31. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Then the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Why did they pick up stones to stone him? Well, he made himself equal with God. When he said, I and the Father are one, he's not saying we are two distinct beings and we are one in purpose. He is saying that he is truly one with God. We talked about this a lot in the last episode. I talked about this a lot in the last episode. We covered that ground together in the last episode with John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So what we end up with is not three separate beings, but one being of God who has revealed himself in three distinct persons who are co-eternal and co-equal. And they even appear and act simultaneously. Interesting stuff. So we don't need to jump to the conclusion that there are three gods who make up one godhead. There's one god who's revealed himself in three persons. I'll let you just marinate on that. To finish this episode, we're now over 40 minutes. Thanks for joining me on this ride. Thanks for listening. Next week, we will get into the temptation of Jesus in Matthew chapter 4. Look forward to catching you then. God bless.